0: M1 is the finance super app that puts you in control of your wealth. Invest, borrow, save, and spend your money how you want with sophisticated automation tools to help you reach your financial goals more easily. 2021 is about rebuilding, building health, building wealth, and everything in between. I've been using M1 for years to manage my long-term investment portfolio. M1 lets me follow some of the top-performing hedge funds like Code 2 and balance my pie based on what the pros are doing. It's truly my favorite investing app in the world. Go to m1finance.com slash to get started today and earn $30 to invest after you fund your account. Terms and conditions apply. M1, yours to build. First off, thank you very much for taking the time and joining the show. excited to talk to you. Uh, Welcome. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me. So for this show, we're going to talk about, obviously, what you're doing with Irrevenant. I'm curious when I meet a younger person who's in venture, I meet a lot of the, like, former founder turned investor, started angel, built a fund, or, like, the rolling fund thing. I meet a lot of this, but I don't actually meet that many people who sort of self-build a fund, I'll put it this way, every time I do talk to someone like you, the takeaway is always like grossly different than when I talk to like the institution investor who's been at this for 25 years. And I don't think it's age and, and like experience the difference. It's It's like just literally how they look at the opportunity in front of like what they're attempting to accomplish is different. So I, I'm curious, you know, give us a little bit of your background. Like What have you been up to up until now?
1: Yeah, sure. So I spent uh, most of the past decade or so um, really in the digital marketing world. So I went to Brandeis, which is a small liberal arts college outside of Boston. Um, I studied economics, um, always loved thinking through like human psychology behavior as well, Uh, read a lot of behavioral economics and was interested in that space. Ended up getting to the marketing world, which was great, combined a lot of my passion for Math and for again human psychology. Grew in that space over a decade. Worked at Quidzy, which was an Amazon startup. Ran digital marketing acquisition for Vitamin Shop, um, which is a publicly traded company at the time. Um, and then in 2014, co-founded a digital marketing agency called Agency Within. So this was really pre-Facebook at the time. Google was was around. You know affiliate comparison shopping engines, display advertising. Um, but you know 2014, Facebook really nascent still um me and a co-founder started it really wanted to bring the parts of that we liked about being in-house and bring that to an agency so really focus on performance really focus on data really focus on analytics um and less focused on kind of the softer parts of marketing if you will and really again focused again on that on that performance and and thinking through more strategically around lifetime value and um you know Enterprise value, how do you build enterprise value from a customer base, not just about, hey, can we make money on this order? And we grew that to be the largest independent marketing agency in the US. I ended up leaving the agency had a successful exit, sold to my partner in 2018, took a little bit of time off. And then just like I took some of the parts about working in-house that I liked the agency, now I want to take the parts that I liked about the agency and bring them forward to whatever I was going to do next but leave behind some of the parts that I didn't like as much. Um, and that's that, that was how I kind of got my start into the venture world.
0: First off, I should say it, the discussing things in terms of LTV, lifetime value, et cetera, in 2000, like four, five, six, seven, eight is like unheard of there. I mean, I would argue even into like the early 2010s, you're still looking at it as like conversion is specific to like this, I want to sell this hat for this to, instead of like, how many times can I get them back? And, you know, you're seeing businesses, my one of my own included in this, that like looks at it like, I would love to get to cover the cost on this one, you know, initial transaction, but my objective is to get you to do this six or seven times.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, so I worked at Quigzy in, in 2011 and they were one of the first like e companies to really, to really grok LTV and really get it. I mean, they were super focused on lifetime value. Um, you know, Quincy again is the holding company for diapers.com, for soap.com, for wag.com, so pet food, personal care, diapers, all real consumable products you need to order multiple times. Not such high profit margin on any individual order, but as people order kind of across the different sites and then order 10, 12, 30 times a year, even, um, that's that's where you start to make money. And one thing they did was they used to have a new customer coupon code instead of it being you know, just off your first order, they would have it be off of your first three orders. They knew that if they could yeah. get someone to place that order three times, they were stuck. That was a habit that they had now developed. They were going to order for the next nine, 12, 18 months. And, and they'd make a lot of money off that customer.
0: So smart. So I am guess that when you're looking at companies and, and you start looking at investing, you're looking at companies that would be the type of companies that your knowledge and your experience would help. Um, it also probably helps shape what you think is a good deal talk a little bit about the transition here. So you're, you're walking out, you've got this idea. I don't want to deal with agency bullshit anymore, but I definitely still want to use the leverage of what I know. Um, how does this, like, did, had, were you investing prior to that? Like as an angel, like, how are you transitioning? No,
1: so, so really didn't know too much about the VC world before that. I mean, I knew about its existence. We had, again, a lot Lucky a lot you. Of
0: <laughs> lucky
1: you, <laughs> we, uh, we worked with a lot of VC-backed companies, very successful, some less successful. I started to, to to realize, like, hey, like, I love startups and entrepreneurship in general, and I also, you know, have a, a skill set that's very desir- desirable on the marketing front, and a perspective and a lens of looking at businesses from someone who's been a former founder, operator, grew from you know zero to 100 employees zero to hundred clients who, you know, has this unique perspective on looking at, at, at different businesses. So, so took that lens, started looking at evaluating kind of three different kinds of businesses. One was direct consumer companies, having worked with a bunch, understanding a lot about LTV and CAC. And I invest in the early stages, you know, pre-seed all the way through C plus. But for me, a lot of investors will scoff at, you know, looking at financial models or metrics or LTV, we're talking about LTV CAC this early, like, I do talk about it. I think it's really important. And it's not about, hey, is it really $15 or $18 to car customers? How does the founder think about it? Do are are these numbers in the right ballpark in terms of what the actual reorder rate's going to look like? Is this a realistic, you know, churn and and cohort retention curve that they've built out? Um, or is it really, you know, pie in the sky and they're not gonna be able to achieve these these metrics around loyalty or retention or or, or acquisition costs? So D 2 C is one subset. Uh, another one is ad tech. So as an agency owner every day, I opened up my LinkedIn and then had 10, 15, you know, spam messages. Hey, try this technology. We'll make you 10 times faster. 20% improvement, this, that. Um, and, and some were great. Some are not. Um, a way of, of evaluating these companies, um, ones that would be worth, you know, Hey, these are the ones worth having a phone call. These are the worth, ones worth testing. Um And, you know, kind of take that same lens to, to how to look at these ad tech companies, whether they're new platforms, whether they're technology, um, you know, is this something that I would have tested? Is it something I would have used now that I'm testing it or have a portfolio company using or testing or, you know, one of their clients testing, let me go ask some questions around how I would be evaluating this, this company. Um, And then the final one is uh, next gen commerce. So people change the way we shop online, offline. Um, This could be things like. Um, marketplaces, it could be um, vertical SaaS businesses, it could be consumer fintech, and just, just realizing you know, the digitization of, of these old industries. You know, I, I don't really get into prop tech. Uh, I don't really do health, health tech, insure tech. Like, there's certain places I don't play, but like, there's still a lot of old legacy businesses coming online and, and bringing that either liquidity through platforms or, or whatever the case might be um, democratizing access, um, through the internet, all those things are are really interesting to
0: to me. I've always thought it would be not only entertaining, but also hilarious to go into my LinkedIn inbox, pick out the 10 companies that have said that they can five X my revenue by the end of the month and literally like put together an email back to them. Like, Hey, so I tried your shit. Um, I want to invest in you or your garbage. I like did you literally just reach right back out to some of these guys and say, Hey, I don't know if you know this, but like I run a fund and blah, blah, blah.
1: So, yeah, I mean, there were definitely ones, you know, that were that I'd heard of or thought about before, or, you know, one, one company I invested in, I'll give you an example. They actually just, just announced their, their series a, um, it's a company called Marpipe. And so what they do is they take creative testing and they, they can make it multivariate creative testing. So what that means is again, going, going back one step, Part of how we were so successful at the agency was we were really data-driven and analytical. One of the hardest places to be data-driven and analytical is creative because yeah. it's unstructured data. Super and so subjective. I, and yeah, and what MarPipe does at a base level is it structures that and then lets you learn from it, right? Yep. And so learning about, you know, MarPipe was was eye-opening. It's a company that if I was at the agency would would have been testing, would have been looking to acquire a company like that, like in terms of what they're accomplishing on that end, right? What they do is they, they will take your creative tests, they will structure them, they will run them, they will help you create the tests, they will help you generate creative to test and, and give you results that are math and evidence-based, not, oh, well, this outperformed and like, I think it's because of this hook or because of this color or background or this text overlay because of how they're doing it, right? They'll take at a very simple level, you know, let's just say five backgrounds and four different images and then three different texts. And they'll, they'll permutate those. Right. So now you have five times, four times three. So you have 60 different ads that they've created. They'll create different, right. You know, they'll, they'll take the layers and, and overlay them. And then they'll, they'll, they'll structure the test to run on Facebook. And then they'll say, Hey, like this is the best performer. Um, this, this combination, but also like this text, you know, really was an outperformer. When you look at, you know, the three different text versions, this text as a whole really outperformed and this background really outperformed and this logo, this background with this image really outperformed and give you all this data so you can then take the test data and then go bring it to your scaling campaigns and and scale that success.
0: So going from there, you're going to launch a fund. You've obviously already launched a fund. Um, There is this like small sort of period of time where you are obviously going to be raising money for the fund, but you're also having these like early conversations with investors about the interest of it and wanting to create it. And I'm sure you've got deal flow coming in from a lot of directions. So that's really not such a concern. What is the, like, I guess, how do you get the buy-in? How do you, as an early kind of individual starting a fund, how did you get some of the, the investors around you? To be like, okay. So Andrew, tell me like how, how many deals have you done on your own? How are they performing? What's your MOIC? Like what's going on? Uh, How did you kind of get past that? Because I, I feel like in my experience so far, those questions, I'm not, I don't have a lot of patience. And so like, I do a lot of deals on my own, because I'll come in with a group of investors. And and I've been asked to start a fund literally almost a, a dozen times now. And I just like, I can't get over the part where the guy's like, so tell me why you and it's like, fucker, like, if you don't want to give me your money, then don't give me your money. Like it's, it's fine.
1: Uh, listen, I have a friend who invests in real estate. I do a lot of deals with him. You know, I invest money with him. If he raise a fund, there'd be no brainer. Right. It would just be about how much can I'm, I, I'm, I'm with, with you. This is right? getting like, to the,
0: to the larger point I brought up at the beginning, which we'll get to is just like the difference. Right. There's a big Talk- difference in how you view these, these things that the, some of the older generation just doesn't, doesn't do it.
1: Yeah. Talking about like, for me to ask questions to him about like, well, how are you going to be building? What's your projected IRR? It's like, why am, I, why am I asking him? Like, yes, I'll read his prospectus and all that. And like, sure, like on a deal by deal basis, depending on like my liquidity at the time, do I wanna move money from the market to this deal or not? Like, sure, like, but at the end of the day, like it, it's about, do you trust this person? And then do you trust that this person's gonna be a good steward of your capital, right? Like that's a lot of what I'm trying to probe into as an investor in founders is, is, do I believe in this founder in this market, right? um me and like i passed on down and said hey like you're awesome you're amazing i hope this is really successful like let's stay in touch when you do something a little bit different because you know i i don't like this market or i don't like you plus this market and it'll be transparent yeah. with it then. um yeah i mean like that's one of the beauties of the rolling fund honestly like so i so i invested over you know as an angel over two and a half years shared a lot of deal flow one of my last deals that i did as an angel that that is you know about to get marked up i did it about six months ago i introduced the founder to five or six people who invested i had a bunch of them invest in the deal without talking to the founder like oh you're investing okay like i'll invest like she was she wrote me uh, an email the subject line was like your network has a really high close rate i was like you know that was the sub the the, the, the email and the message you know the subject line. and i emailed back like yes like and then she i introduced her to one more and she like was like oh here's the deck blah blah i'm like no no, no. like send them the safe, send them, they're ready to wire, send them the safe and the wiring instructions. And like, you guys can talk after about how they could be like, blah, blah, blah. But like, they're ready to wire. Like, and so it's was just like, I should do a fund. Like people are trusting me, you know, based on my decision-making process and all that. And the rolling fund structure was great for that, right? Like now I don't need to find an anchor LP to put in, you know, a couple million bucks. Like the fund will probably be somewhere around a million dollars a quarter TBD, where it ends up. Is it seven fifty? Is it a million? Does it grow to 1.2 million a quarter? You know, which when you look at it, a three-year life cycle, it's, you know, a $10 million fund to call it, you know, which is probably what I would have been targeting anyway, a 10, $12 million fund. Um, and part of the beauty of it is also like you have LPs that are putting in 10 K a quarter, you know, 40 K a year. Like the decision-making process for them is, for a lot of people, it's a lot of money, you know, and and I'm not belittling it, but for some people, it's not. For some people, it's like it's it's like an easy access point. Hey, here's 10k. You know, I've I've some LPs who put in 10, 25k a quarter, or like I'll ramp up to 100k a quarter once I see the process and like once I see how this is working, right? Meaning it's also like that's the beauty of a rolling fund where they can they can come and they could commit more over time as well. Hats off to Angelus and like I really owe them a lot for for developing and building this product. It's it's phenomenal.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the questions I think ultimately that some of the older investors that I talked to was like, I don't feel like they, how do you put this? And I don't mean this offensively to to anyone who's listening, who is of that age. Uh, They view networking different. They view it as like, Well, it's that time of year again, time to go hit the Rolodex and do a bunch of pound the phones. And like, you know, they raise 15 million and then they hang up and they disappear them for people like us who kind of organically communicate even this way, doing a podcast and then like go back to Twitter and I'll find you on Twitter. And we'll go back and forth.
1: Scott, is that a commit to the fun? (laughs) It
0: could be. We'll see
1: how the show goes. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm, I'm saying like, it's, it's easier for you to be like, I'm just going to keep this going. I I have three LPs that that I've never met before that that. That follow me on Twitter, I posted about it. That's another thing. Five hundred and six C being able to publicly talk about public, yeah. publicly solicit um, is huge. I, I recommend it for anyone who's doing a fund, even if you're not doing a rolling fund, you can do a five hundred and six C. It's a little harder. You have to you have to do a little bit more on, on ensuring that LPs are accredited, but not difficult. Again, Angelus handles all of it. Um, yeah. Um. But it it it's it's not about that. It's about you know I have a, a lot of LPs who are just you know, who were kind of waiting in the wings, you know, like, yes, they did a deal or two with me along the way, like when I share, but like they were excited, you know, and like, you know, I reached out to them, oh, I'm raising a fund. It wasn't like, it's something I've been thinking about and talking about for a while, especially for an emerging manager for for emerging manager for fund one, like you need to lay that groundwork a little bit. I don't think I'll be doing rolling funds forever. I'll probably switch to a more traditional model and slightly larger fund and more anchor LP type situations institutionals family offices, building those capital relationships. It's not like I just blasted it out, you know, one day was, you know, it's over time. And like, I also officially decided like early June and I've spent the last three and a half months also fundraising just for the first quarter and we'll continue to do that. Um, And like, there's also a beauty in the rolling fund for me of a few things like, yeah, it's very easy for uh, you know, an LP to say like, Oh, just get them next quarter. And so like, that is, you don't have that FOMO inducement on people, which, you know, some fund managers use. I, I'm okay with that. Like, I'd rather not FOMO people into investing with me. I'd rather them just develop a relationship. Hey, yeah, I'll, I'll send you whatever publicly available information about Q1 I can, like five deal memos, you know, maybe it'll be reductive, but that I share with LPs, maybe I could share a slimmed down version with you. Right. Um, you know, thing, things like that, right? And so, that it's also like either you enjoy it or you don't. And like it's fun to me. It's part of I think what a little bit was missing when I was doing the angel investing is like I feel like I'm building something again and building the fun, building the LP relationships. I like selling. It's enjoyable. If you're if you don't enjoy selling, you're probably will never get good at it, right? And I didn't always enjoy it, right? But it's it's a process and you learn. One last thing on the rolling fund, like also with these level of commitments, like I don't have that many like very big LPs or that I was talking to prospective LPs where I know it would be really harmful. Like I us have someone who committed and then they lost their job, you know, that they had to pull out. And like, they were like worried about telling me. I'm like, like, you got to do what you got to do. Like take care of your own first. Like also at the same time, it was like, I was just explaining to them as, you know, someone, I, someone I know, it's like also just like, don't worry about it. Like I would love to, to have your money. I would love to invest it, be able to grow it. But like, it represents, you know, 1% or 1.2% of the fund. Like it's not, it won't matter in the long run in terms of no. the size. And like having a lot of relationships like that, it makes it a little bit easier to get no to, to, to feel the nose. Like, okay, like I've we'll probably end up with something like 75 LPs by by the end of Q1. And I'll probably have, you know, not talked to but pitched over email close to a thousand people, right? So that's a lot of nose, not 125 knows you know? Yeah. That's, that's the 10 or 11 no's to every
0: yes. Like that's life, you know? No. And, and I, I really do think if I could go back and say that again, that if you don't like sales, you won't be good at it. I'd also like to add comma. If you want to be a founder or an investor or an entrepreneur in any way where you're self-reliant, if you don't like sales, get a different job, have a different dream. Cause it's, unless you're like the CTO and you're just the person who's coding up a storm It's and even then I would argue like you're going to be managing a team. You're going
1: to have to sell to. I mean, somebody's got to buy in. You got to sell to employees. You got to sell to investors. You got to sell to customers, right? Like you have, you got to sell. Everybody, right? Um. So I mean, I got to sell to LPs. I got to get to sell to founders get allocation. You're always selling, right? I gotta, I gotta sell to my wife to give me time to do things like irritating. sell to the kids. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like a lot of life is, is framing, and, and it's sales isn't a bad word, and and but yeah, if you if you don't like selling, you probably aren't gonna like being a founder.
0: So that's a pretty fair estimate. So when you look at the rolling fund, one of the other things that I really like about the structure of it is that you can do other things. Like I think if I were to do that ever, and then roll into like a real like big time traditional fund. I would feel like unless I had hired people to run it like that, I'm that's kind of my full-time job. With a rolling fund, I feel there's a little bit more flexibility. <clears throat> you can find the time to do what you're supposed to do. It's, it's not quite the structure of the traditional. But the, the thing that I think is, is particularly interesting is you had mentioned some of the, the pros and cons of the investors and the LPs that you have in it. One of the big pros to me has been when I talk to a lot of angels or LPs themselves who invest in whether it's real estate or, or any number of things, they don't have a great structure for investing in startups. Their deal flow is usually spotty at best. It's like a friend of a friend or something popped up on their radar, first look fund or whatever. Uh, I think that guys like you have the opportunity to sort of carve a niche and be like, listen, you don't have to worry about anything. Like you do what you're doing. Like you said before, for them, most of them, 50,000 is not a big check. It's not a huge risk. It shit goes south. They're not going to call you up and be like, you ruined me. Like this is not going to happen.
1: I'm not, I'm not pro- I can't make any guarantees, but like, it's really hard to lose like a hundred percent of capital in early yeah. state Venture over the last 10 years. Like, even if you've invested not in the market. market Things yeah. Are crazy. I mean, like, it's hard to not, you know, like the bottom quartile returns are still, you know, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.9. So, you know, yes, any individual asset is very risky, right. And volatile and, and, and all that. But when you have a portfolio approach you're investing in, at least about 18 to 25 companies. Like, it's just in a fun, like, and like, that's also part of the pitch. I'm like, listen, like, you invested in this deal, and like, who knows? It could work, it could not. And A, it doesn't look like it's going to be that successful. B, like, that's not how you do this, right? Like, that's some of my pitch to LPs. It's like, don't invest. Don't, I'm not even saying don't invest. If you invest in me, great, you don't invest in me, great. But like, if I were you, I would be looking at emerging managers. Sub 20 million dollar funds, 25 million dollar funds, those are the ones that outperform, fund ones and fund twos outperform. And like it's worth paying the two and 20 because this is what the person's doing and they have the access and they have the deal flow and the diligence. You're just you're only investing in inbound. If I only invested in, you know, inbound and I wasn't in this industry, like you're seeing 10 deals a, a year, you know, and you're investing in two, I'm seeing 10 deals a day and investing in, you know to a quarter. Like think about who's going to see better deals.
0: Right. I, I think I agree with that hundred percent. I also think what's, it's interesting is you look at the, the way that operators, former operators are getting into venture. And it's like, it's almost like you think about like all the hedge funds and they went down the route of quant and it was like, they're out quanting each other to where their returns actually aren't that great. And you start looking at a lot of the, the venture funds. When I think of SoftBank, like, he gets such conviction on a handful of deals and they're just awful, awful. And the numbers, I'm sure the numbers looked amazing. I'm sure when they went through the deck and they were like, oh my God, look at the multiples. In 10 years, this company's gonna be $20 trillion. It's a thought process that if you're truly an operator, you're coming into it. You're like, I can tell you from a person who's been in this position, there's no fucking way that that's gonna happen. There's just no way, right? And like, I, I think you're seeing a lot of operators coming in and their view of how they look at a deal and how they bet on something is different than like, well, we looked at the charts and the market cam is X. And it's like, eh, it doesn't necessarily tell the whole picture. Uh, and I think if you've been a real operator, like a, a real operator in a startup, you've been there from zero to 100, zero to hundred million. You can sit there looking at down quarters and down months and you're not freaking out because you know exactly where it's going. If you're a VC who's not been in that situation, you're looking at a down month or quarter and you're thinking like, whoa, this isn't a good company. And you miss because of that.
1: I always say that you need to be the best version of yourself, right? As, as anything, but anything as, as an investor, right? Like, where am I gonna succeed? Okay, where do I have good deal flow? Where am I gonna be able to source well? Where am I gonna be able to diligence well? Where am I gonna be able to add value? Um, and then also, you know, where, when, when you talk about diligencing, right? So if I have experience in this space or I've seen, you know, a hundred G 2 C companies and you're showing me, Hey, these are my, you know, I just got off call with a, you know, someone who's in the travel space and their conversion rate numbers are good, but their cost per lead numbers are phenomenal. And it's like, wow, those are amazing. Like I have a frame of reference for them. Like I still obviously need diligence and NCO grows and all of that. But like, I know that that's where I need to harp on. Like what, at the end of the day I usually come down to drilling down to one or two questions on top of like the founder the founder market fit and all that but it's it's one or two questions around like right so for me it's like for them is it does this content that that they're leveraging that drives this really low cost per lead like is that defensible is that scalable um and and like is that have the ability to create a billion dollar business right around around that that's that's their secret sauce and like and like looking into that and then, and then driving down that, or does that have the ability to give them this, this lead in this space uh, that they can then, you know, and that they can build a really big platform on top of. And like, that's how I kind of, you know, approach it and, and investing in general is how do I get down to those two, three final questions, you know, again, after you kind of sit through, okay, this is real, this business makes sense. The market's good. Founder, right. Founder, founders, paramount, especially at the early stages. and then like their approach, it really just comes down to like narrowing down those final two, three questions.
0: I I totally agree. I love it. I I mean, to me, I always try to look at whether it's a business or a market down into unit economics so that I can kind of easily determine like, what are the key key factors that you are going to need as a business to actually hit those numbers? Because like at a certain point, it it ceases to be profitable. So kind of final questions I've got for you basically is, you, you know, you're looking at this as a segue into doing the larger traditional fund potentially down the road. What are the parts about investing that you've gotten excited about? You start to see people getting into crypto, obviously, now NFTs, uh, a lot of young people getting into the stock market. I think you're gonna start to see kind of a, a more diverse investor. The future may not just be the old, like, oh, I've got a big venture firm. How do you view sort of the evolution of investing in particular for yourself, but also people like us who are gonna do it our way versus the old way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, for me, I'm excited about, you know, traditional fund, but I, I'm really excited, you know, still really focused on this this first fund and making sure I raise it, make sure I get into to good companies and get great, drive great returns. I think I'm, I'm really excited about like access and just what that means, like whether it's investing in a marketplace that's enabling access, you know, I'm, I'm looking at something. Um, in the, in the wine space, a wine marketplace, you know, where traditionally it's been a field that's only been for the ultra wealthy. And now they're democratizing that. Right. And making it so you can invest at 50, $60, you know, share. Um, and then also just like at these founders, like I feel young, I'm 33. I'm like, I, you know, but I'm blown away by these 25, 30, 22 year old founders. Um, and then also, you know, listen, I still have a lot of work to do in this space, but you know, investing in underrepresented founders. I, uh, you know, about 50% of my investments have had a underrepresented founder, or there's an immigrant, uh female founder, LGBTQ founder. And I think like, there's a lot of unconscious and maybe conscious bias um, that people might have and like combating that and, and just seeing the next generation. And I mean, listen, I'm, you know, uh, a millennial and, and Gen Z is pushing us even more and, and, gen a or whatever they're called after that is going to be even better at this and so like that that really excites me you know where at the end of the day you know it's just about talent and and the future is here it's not evenly distributed it's starting to get more and more evenly distributed and, and being playing a small part in that process is exciting to me
0: listen thank you so much for taking the time where do people go to uh, learn more about you follow you all that stuff
1: yeah, definitely. Um, check out my website, irreverent.com. I-R-R-V-R-N-T.com. Follow me on Twitter at vc. People say I'm a little bit funny and snarky. So closing on 5,000 followers, uh, maybe I'll do a giveaway for the 5,000 follower, but uh, no management fee for them. So yeah, but uh, thank you so much, Scott, for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was, this was awesome.
0: Of course, anytime. If you're interested in self-directed investing from startups to crypto and public markets, my Substack is a great way to learn how professional investors screen, review, and pull the trigger on deals. Join the largest community of micro-investors and startup founders on Substack by going to katoon.com.